want to remind you as we introduce Seth Siegel, um, who's the author of the book Let There Be Water, I do want to mention that tomorrow is, of course, uh, Giving Tuesday, and the JNF is participating in the program, as so many great organizations are. And if you give me just one second, I'm going to give you the exact details. Here we go. Um, Jewish National Fund announced it will again take part in the Universal Giving Tuesday campaign December 1st. That is tomorrow, so keep that in mind. And the Russell Robinson and its leadership at JNF, the leadership at JNF, encourages everybody to participate. And you'll hear some, uh, believe me, I'm sure in this conversation, some of their programs will uh, uh, will be discussed. Um, anyway, to give to the JNF Giving Tuesday initiative, it's jnf.org slash Tuesday. Again, that's jnf.org slash Tuesday. Check that out and enjoy. Seth M. Siegel is the author of the book, Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. He's a lawyer, activist, writer, and successful serial entrepreneur. His essays on water and other policy issues have been everywhere, many leading publications around the world. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, speaks regularly on a range of topics, including water policy, Middle East politics, and national security. He blogs about water issues at Seth M. Siegel. That's S-I-E-G-E-L dot com. And he lives in New York City. Seth M. Siegel, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's so great to be back with you again. I appreciate that. And before we begin, I noticed, um, you know, we've been talking about the water summits that are that have been going on. You already did one in the Chicago. You did one in Boston. Am I right that Austin, Texas takes place this week? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Uh, we're speaking Wednesday morning at the LBJ School on the campus of University of Texas, Austin. It's, uh, it's not only a very exciting audience that I'm uh, interested in speaking before, but also given the fact that Lyndon Johnson himself played such a significant role in, in helping Israel jump forward in its desalination efforts, I'm actually very grateful for the opportunity to be on campus. And frankly, um, when I did my research for the book, I expected I'd be flying down to Austin, but nowadays everything is digitized. So the research director there said, no need to do that. Just go to your computer, punch in the following keywords, and and it was as if I was in Austin, Texas without the cowboy boots. Oh, my gosh. There's some countries that don't have water and others that just a stroke of a key, and they're somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a disparity, huh? Unbelievable. Uh, by the way, I mean, you, you got to start with this, even though I know we got to talk about the whole history and, of course, the whole book. But why did LBJ take such a strong interest in all this? You know, I think it comes from the fact that he grew up in, in a farm in Texas, and he wrote at one point that the world was divided into two types of people people who got their water by turning the faucet, faucet, and people like him who walked with an empty pail looking skyward, wondering when the water would come. Right. And from that, he came to think of the fact that there's lots of ocean out there, and if we could only, as he used the word, desalt the sea, we'd be in a great position and be able to, um, to change the world. And, and he, for crazy reasons, <clears throat> which I talk about in my book, he decides to partner with Israel in the 1960s, in developing Israel's desalination industry, he thought to himself that this Jewish people would be a great partner to have at a time when clearly there was a lot of American scientists who could have been doing the work as well. And if we go to the uh, to the core of the era of its beginning, it would be the 1930s. Would that be when Palestine slash Israel really starts to pay careful attention to the future of water? Well. Look, water was always important to the Zionist movement, so that, you know, way back even in 1902, when Herzl writes Alt Neuland, uh, the modern Jewish, you know, modern, old modern state, basically, translates, when he writes Alt Neuland, which is his great novel talking about the Zionist endeavor, 
which is a futuristic novel, what does he say of the, of the heroes of the land of Israel? He doesn't say it's the politicians. He doesn't say it's the generals. He doesn't say it's the prime ministers. He says it's the water engineers. Right. So it's so remarkable that early and embedded in the Zionist thinking, already we have the idea that water is going to be a central part of this. But you're absolutely correct. Coming in the late 1930s, as, these, as the immigration of Jews largely fleeing Hitler in Europe, coming into Palestine, but not only. Um, it, it becomes more and more important that water sources be developed. And then in 1939, the British issue the White Paper, which bans immigration, functionally bans immigration to Palestine, which is the Palestine Mandate. That was with the name of the land of Israel in that time because the British controlled it. And, and the reason for banning immigration to the land of Israel by Jews was they said there just wasn't enough water. And that led off a furious effort by the Zionists to prove to the British that there was not just enough water for the people then, about a million and a half people, but for millions and millions more who could have fled Europe and been saved had the British allowed them in. And, and from that water smarts that they developed, and I revive the whole story of how they did it and how they thought about it, um, they come up with a master plan, which frankly is the plan that to this day is the essence of what and how Israel manages its water. And it is exactly the way in which the world, if it gets out of this coming global water crisis, will be getting out of its water crisis. And that's by becoming more like Israel and following what Israel has done. Seth Siegel is with us. And, and, and when you say the same, the same to the point where you know we could almost say that literally, or things are much, much different these days, even though they are so similar to the beginnings? Well, look, um, clearly, you know, um, everything is different because of technology. Everything is different because of computer science. Everything is different because of material sciences. I mean, the, the world is very different. What, what happened in the 1930s is this man who's forgotten to history, who I revive in the book named Simcha Blas. What Simcha Blas does is he, he thinks up a master strategy for how they're going to save themselves and develop all kinds of water resources. Right. Now, you're absolutely correct in the premise of your question that with different materials and different in, insights today the systems are far more sophisticated and far more efficient and it is the israel of today that the world will be following not the israel of 1939 and i think i've asked you i think i've asked you in the past who the unsung hero is and, and you always cite him because there's 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 hundreds you could cite right i mean there are a lot of people involved in all this well i, I identify quite a number of people not not dozens but i identify about a half a dozen people in the book who were the uh, who were the essential souls you know they were the the guys unfortunately all guys i mean none of them were women in this story but right. but they all came up with this remarkable remarkable uh insights one guy comes up with the idea that we, we in Israel have to be reusing, he says, our sewage. And beginning in the 1950s, he starts lobbying for this. And so ultimately today, Israel leads the whole world in thinking about how to reuse its sewage for agriculture. Uh, another couple of people are thinking about how to desalinate water. And they change the world. And, and Simcha Blas changes the world in a different way, not just in the plan that he writes for the British, but in the early, uh, late 1950s, early 1960s, he revolutionizes agriculture. Uh, when he's out of government, he revolutionizes, revolutionizes agriculture by inventing something called drip irrigation, right. which will probably be the single most important invention that will save us out of our water crisis. And even today, quite obviously, if it's saving us as we speak, even today that whole system is being used, and there are countries and states in the United States that are using it to their advantage to get out of water crises. Yes, in fact, California, 
which still uses the ancient form of flood irrigation in a significant number of its fields. The greatest transformation about California in the last several years has been its transition from flood irrigation to Israeli drip irrigation. And, and, and there are many, many ad- things that have been adopted by California of Israel's. But the singly most important thing in saving water is the idea of dripping water at the roots rather than flooding the whole field. And that has saved at least 50 or 60 percent of, of the water that uh, is needed. Is that a difficult transition, just business-wise, technology-wise, manpower-wise? Is it hard to do that, to switch from one to the other? No, actually, it's not hard. It's a question of financing. And, and first of all, the problem in the United States is that we functionally treat water as free in much of our, in much of our localities. Right. And, uh, That's how we grew up. I'm sorry? That's how we grew up. We grew up with it. Water is free. We yeah. think of it as an entitlement. We think of it as abundant as air and, and, and sunshine. And therefore, we don't treat water like it's a, although massive, we don't treat it like it's a precious resource that could be, could be uh, exhausted. Now, the problem about drip irrigation is we just need to have the will, and farmers need to have the insight that they can save a lot of water. And I think government could play a role in educating and also in giving good tax uh, benefits to installing drip irrigation. By the way, I must add, around the world, the whole world has gotten the joke. In India, which is the world's fastest-growing drip irrigation uh, country, they understand that they're going to beat their race against time and running out of water if they do, only because of the fact that they're going to be able to completely rethink agriculture. And Israel is a great beneficiary of that in terms of both diplomatic relations as well as in terms of commerce. Seth Siegel, author of Let There Be Water. Are there countries that stay away from these methods because they come from Israel? Well, here's the great little dirty secret. You know, uh, I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of this uh, pernicious and disgusting BDS movement. Of course. Well, the secret is is that they're mostly a bunch of phonies <laughs> because of the fact that with my research, I tell the story of this in the book as well, 150 countries around the world trade with Israel around its water technology, including Israel's in, water technology, including countries that badmouth Israel at the UN and other places on a daily basis. So it could be Arab countries, African countries, and those, like you say, are always at the top of the list of bashing Israel. Countries that would shock your listeners <laughs> to discover that are busy uh, making nice uh, on the on the buying of Israeli water technology but not so nice when they have to make a public declaration. Right. At what point did it become a commodity that would be sellable to other countries, something that you know would be a business model that, you know, with consultation with the Israelis, countries and states would be able to implement it on their own? Oh, it's happening all over the world right now. Oh, my goodness. Oh, oh it's, it's just extraordinary. But is it like that for 20, 30 years already or not? Well, here's what's been going for 20, 30 years. Actually, back to, back to uh, the time of when Golda Meir in the 1950s was the foreign minister of Israel, she, she, because of some Zionist impulse, uh, which I won't go into here, she makes the decision that she wants to help the African nations with their water problems. Right. And they develop a whole cadre, like a sort of a non-military army of water consultants that go to third world countries, poor countries, to teach them how to be smart with their water. From that develops the whole idea that if you want to be more like Israel, you have to also use Israeli technology, Israeli seeds, and so forth. So Israeli trade over water has started to grow, but it's only in the last 10 years that it's really boomed 
with uh, the whole world coming to understand that they're only going to get out of their problems if they're more like Israel. And when you do these uh, water summits with JNF, as I mentioned toward the beginning of our conversation, I mean, are you addressing any any uh, you know audiences that are in a panic that are, that really need this immediately and are are here to learn how to implement it, or is this more of an educational, informative type uh, gathering? Nahum, the most interesting thing about this tour, and uh, and, uh, and if you were correct in saying I'm doing a series of twelve right. JNF water summits around the country. Uh, in partnership with this wonderful organization, JNF, and I heard your call to your listeners to donate to JNF, and I think it's a fabulous thing. I myself have done so. It's just an extraordinary organization that does great things for Israel. Um, but I will tell you that the amazing thing is that I am speaking widely. I've given more than 55 speeches already since the book came out just a few months ago, and the speeches are primarily not to Jewish audiences. Right. And what's so fascinating to me is that they travel around the entire country speaking at business schools and engineering schools and professional groups, is how non-Jews, non-Jews are sparking to how extraordinary Israel is and how essential Israel is to their to answers to their problems. So I spoke the other day in San Diego to a business school there, and the audience was filled with students from third world, from third world countries and from, and from out of the United States. And I spoke at Columbia University a few weeks ago, and the audience was primarily students from Asia and South America and Africa. And you know what? They were so fascinated, not by the politics of the moment, but by what Israel could do to help them jump over their water problems. Can this change the political scene? We talked about you know, how people are hush-hush, that they're using Israeli technology as they continue to bash Israel. But can, can there be greater progress made, or could literally change the political scene and the attitude toward Israel? I coin a phrase in my book, hydro-diplomacy. <laughs> and the pattern for Israel has been, for several decades now, in little, quiet, incremental ways, to use their water smarts, <clears throat> to use their water smarts, and to use their water technology and to use water as a tool of diplomacy so that countries that currently do not have diplomatic relations with Israel that buy Israeli water technology, well, guess what? It's Israeli businessmen that go into those countries quietly but on Israeli passports, meeting with government officials, meeting with industry officials, and sharing with them all kinds of information. This slowly opens the door, and I will recount in my book the remarkable story of the way water engineers opened the door to the country of Iran mm. in 1962, of how water engineers opened the door to China in the 80s and 90s and led to diplomatic relations. And so it has gone in lots of other countries. And I absolutely predict, predict that water will become a pathway for peace, diplomacy, coexistence, and dialogue for Israel with many, many, many other countries that today have no relations with them. Can I rest assured that the current Israeli government gets what you're saying and is utilizing it as a positive factor in these types of negotiations? Well, I sure hope so. I don't know. I, I have not in any way coordinated my book with the foreign ministry <laughs> or with any other really government, uh, any other government agency other than here and there getting interviews with government officials in the, uh, in the economy ministry. But So I can't say for sure, but boy, if they're not, <laughs> Somebody ought to give him a new job description. Seth M. Siegel with us. The uh, book is called Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. It is a, a Thomas Dunn book, St. Martin's Press. Um, it, the, is it the same person? I mean, I would assume that early on especially, but even up until today, uh, you need certain cooperation from obviously scientists and farmers and other types of industries, technology, etc. Many, many different industries coming together to do all this and accomplish all this. Has that 
weighted percentage changed over the years? Are farmers still as key as they were back then to get all this done? Are they, uh, I don't know, more obsolete than in the early days of Israel? How would you describe it? Oh, well, well, it's actually, I think the, the trend is going actually very much in favor of what Israel would be interested in seeing. First of all, within Israel itself, there hasn't been a flood-irrigated field. There hasn't been a reckless use of water now in many decades. And um, Israel uses 75% of its fields use drip irrigation today. So there's just no question of the fact that um, Israel itself is the model for how to use reuse sewage, and the JNF plays a large part in helping with that, right. uh, or in drip irrigation or in desalination. Israel is the model in those technologies and many others. What's happening around the world is, if you notice, farmers are very change-averse. They do what their fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers did on the same plot of land. And what is happening around the world now, because of all kinds of problems of water depletion and climate change and and bad infrastructure and so forth, is that farmers are beginning to discover that they just don't have the water resources they need to do what they have to do and to have any certainty that they'll have the water they need two or three or five years from now. Wow. So, yes, indeed, the opposite of what you'd think, that it's slowed down. It's the opposite. It's, spe- it's speeding up now. And then they're catching up to it. Well, they're catching up to some extent, yes. I mean, there's no country in the world even remotely close to Israel. Right in its adoption rates of any of these te- technologies, or also, we're talking just about science, but also Israel, which likes to, be, likes to beat itself up at everything it does wrong. You know, Israelis, I've been interviewed <laughs> by dozens of Israeli journalists, and yeah. they, all they want to hear is what Israel's doing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality, is, the reality is that Israel's really doing something so right here that, that the only analogy I can give is in the same way that Israel's army is a remarkable army that for a small country, it's the regional powerhouse army, and it's one of the three, four, five best armies in the world. Likewise, I would say, in terms of water, Israel is a global water powerhouse, and it's probably the most sophisticated, now probably is the most sophisticated water-managed society in the world. So it has smart governance, smart regulation, and smart practices that permeate its entire way of doing business, some of which, by the way, was influenced by JNF, but a lot of it is homegrown. So if uh, Israel, excuse me, if, if certain countries, let's say on the African continent or other places, are still water-starved, the reason is because the investment hasn't been made there yet, they haven't caught up to the technology, they haven't discovered it yet. How would you answer that? Yes, it, it, it's, it's a lot of those. It's, it's also, if I may say, and I say with pain, I say in the book several times that, that water problems are a proxy for bad governance. And in countries where there is a lack of transparency, where there is corruption, where the haves steal for themselves what the have-nots only could dream of having a part of, in those places, sadly, water technology and water practices have not permeated to the people. Understood. And so what you need is you need to have smart, good governance as well as good practices. And and there's no practice more important than than a government that sees itself in the interest of its people rather than the people as victims who they can fleece. So in countries that are like that, or in countries where the where the country is in civil war constantly for decades, yes, the water infrastructure is in a disastrous place, and the people will pay, as always, the small people will pay a terrible price in a few years when the water gives out. So with proper governance and with, uh, with leaders that actually care about the future of their people, everybody's desert can bloom. Well, in the 20th century, Nachum, this is a fascinating 
small fact that your listeners might enjoy. In the 20th century, there's only one country whose space that has desert has shrunk. So of all the countries in the world that started the 20th century with a desert, every other country's desert lands grew except in Israel. And considering that Israel was only formed in 1948, it makes it even all the more remarkable. How unbelievable. And so what we learn <clears throat> from smart water policy is that you can actually take marginal land, and in the case of Israel, desert land, and turn it into something that is productive land. Most of the world treats their desert as worthless or as a nuisance. Right. And in Israel, they have seen it as an opportunity, developing new seeds, developing new irrigation techniques. And it is from the desert, from the western Negev, from the Arava desert, that Israel grows billions and billions of dollars a year worth of peppers and melons and cucumbers and tomatoes and all the kinds of great produce. It's unbelievable. Uh, are the, I mentioned to you last time we spoke that there are many, uh, I don't know about many, but there are certain Hollywood celebrities, high-profile people that have taken on the cause of water, especially in places like Africa. Are they aware of what a relatively small investment and what a relatively you know keen look to the future can mean to these countries and to the people who are who are thirsty at this point well if you've got any um hollywood glitterati among your listeners i call out to them right now uh to ask them to do more about this um a handful of um celebrities have come to understand the value of drip irrigation and have assisted in uh getting the drip irrigation installed in, in some of the most desperately poor places in the world um, but overall, I would say that there has not been a lot of that. What, what the Hollywood crowd seems to be focused on primarily, which is an important issue, is clean drinking water. Right. And Israel has long ago mastered that as well. But the issue for Israel is, the, is as much the quantity of water as the quality of the water, although I talk in the book also about ways in which Israel has enhanced that for, for the poorest people. By the way, I, I hasten to add one other thing. <clears throat> although I said that in countries where there's bad leadership, right. there's problems. And the fact of the matter is that everywhere that drip irrigation has been installed, and that's more than 100 countries around the world, everywhere that drip irrigation has been installed, the water usage levels have dropped for agriculture. Everywhere that, that it's been installed, the yields, the amount of crops produced, has enhanced. So, so you don't need to just necessarily have good government. You have to have somebody who is happy to be a partner of the, farm, of the farmers, as is the case in some countries. Seth M. Siegel is author of the book, Let There Be Water. When did JNF get into the whole water category? Oh, it's been, it's been fundamentally part of the JNF thinking from early, earliest days, uh, uh, you know, more than 100 years. You know, JNF was formed to buy land from the uh, Arab landholders. Most of them were living in Paris or Beirut. Um, they started during the Ottoman era. And the JNF always understood that, that water and, and water quality and water abundance would be part of the story of settling the land. Because you'll remember that although today Israel is very much a urban environment with Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and the other big cities there, uh, in its earliest days the idea was that, uh, the, that they, that, to use the phrase of the time, we came to build and were rebuilt by it. Right. The idea of that was that the settlements were mostly farms, whether they were kibbutzim or socialist farms, or whether they were more private farms like Moshevim. Unbelievable. Uh, finally, why did Michael Bloomberg uh, take such an interest in your book? Well, I think that Michael Bloomberg and Tony Blair and Ariana Huffington and others who have been very kind, and Robert F. Kennedy, the environmentalist, many others who have been very kind and, and, and generous in providing 
um, uh, wonderful reviews of the book, I, I think they all understand as, as important, responsible leaders that it's only with us uh, assuring our water supply, whether it's a rich country or a poor country, that we have a viable future. The future will be extremely bleak, Nahum, if we don't get ahead of the curve, not just in the United States, but around the world. And I hasten to add for your listeners who think that, there is, that this affects only people far away, but not them. The U.S. government is now projecting that 40 of our 50 states will be seeing water scarcity by 2025. Wow. We have eight U.S. states now in severe drought. The state of New Jersey is in Tier 1 level drought. And this is spreading everywhere in our country. Not everywhere, but many places in our country. And so this comes home for your listeners, not just as something that's a newspaper story, but something that will affect them, affect food prices, affect global security, affect the U.S. and its interaction with the countries important for its security as well. So this is, a, this is, a, this is not something that's some remote, uh, nice-to-have issue. This is something that we've got to get right. We've got to get it right just about everywhere. And if we don't do that, we're in trouble. And my book tells the story of how we can do that. And I, I hope that it becomes a, a, a blueprint for our leaders and for citizen activists who are concerned about this. And in any event, it's a wonderful pro-Israel story that I would like to think that your readers at this Hanukkah season would love to see and, and share with friends and relatives. Oh, no question about it. You want to feel good about Israel, you read this book. It's as simple as that. Uh, it, it's remarkable. Water is everything, basically. It's just everything. And you, and you prove it, and you, uh, and you remind the world about that. Uh, the book is called Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. Seth M. Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L. Seth, always a delight to speak with you, and I think primarily because you remind us about the miracle of Israel how incredible things have been for this young, young uh, state of Israel. It is. It's, it's, you know, if I can close with just one sure. thought. Moshe, when he strikes the rock, what is going on with the children of Israel at that time? God, God is providing the food in, in terms of manna, right. but, but, but God instructs Moshe that he's responsible for the water. Mm-hmm. So water has always been a partnership between man and God and man and nature, and Moshe symbolically is responsible for that, and I think that that's true to this day is that we have an obligation to provide for our water future and our water destiny, and no country in the world has shown that and proved that more dynamically and more inspirationally, I might add, than has Israel. Well said. Seth, thank you so much, and a very happy Hanukkah to you. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. I appreciate that. Let there be water. Seth M. Siegel, this is JM in the AM. <laughs>